have a seat. Uh, good morning, Bedrock family. How are we doing this morning? Good. Good. It's good to see everybody. Um, first of all, thank you to um, thank you to everyone that bought a gift for teachers. We're excited to distribute those. First day of school is on the 31st, so Tuesday. Um, for me, that was always the worst day. Uh, did not love school, but um, for some, like my daughters, they cannot wait for school. School's happening soon, so um, we're excited to be able to bless some teachers, and that's at the hands of, of you guys. We're going to talk about generosity a little bit today at the end, and um, it's a perfect example of giving of your means, the things that you have available to you, making sure that you can do what you can for the others around you. Um, yeah, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, uh, 19 through 30. We're going to continue through our power formation movement series out of the book of Acts. Um, so excited to do that. Um, what's something uh, that you would like to see before you die? Do we all have, um, we have bucket lists. Do you have a bucket list? Has anyone actually written down a bucket list where they're just like, yes. There you go, Alex. I love it. <laughs> Uh, there's this list, and whether it's something that you've written down or something that you have just like in your head, there's these things or maybe places or things you're just like, I just, I would, I don't need to do everything, but I would like to do these few things, you know, I, it's just a couple things. And so for me, a lot of them resolve around like national parks. I, I like, I, I want to, I haven't seen Yosemite. I think it'd be really cool to see Yosemite National Park. Um, I would like to see. I would like to celebrate a Super Bowl with um, with my girl with my girls. I'd like to see the Eagles win a Super Bowl in my lifetime. Another one. Um, there's uh, there's other things that that we have. I don't know if it's oftentimes it's like trips, but then sometimes it's like personal goals. You know, as you're just like you know, I'd like to start a business. Someone's like, this is what I'd like to do, or or I'd like to you know live in a certain place. Uh, one of the things that you see all throughout. Uh, scripture is that these things, being the people of God, uh, there's, God does incredible things. He does absolutely incredible th- things throughout the story of Scripture, but he does those things in, in our life as well. And so one of the things I wanted to encourage us to do just at the beginning is to think through, spiritually, have you ever thought about, like, your bucket list? <laughs> like, what um, would you like to see God do in your life before you die? like, man, I don't know. That's kind of, you know, it's up to the Lord. Absolutely. It is absolutely up to the Lord. But there's things that you see throughout Scripture where you're just like longing to be a part of something like that. Um, And I see that in today's passage where there's this incredible, absolutely incredible moment where you have the hand of God move in such a way over the church of Antioch that is unique. And it's something that I personally long to be a part of. Like, there's this longing in you that's just like, man, that you could be a part of something that is, is such a provision that it's so evident that God's hand was at work. That's the only explanation for it, the hand of God. And, and so I, I think there's these things that we have in our life that when we look at, like, from, from beginning to end, that as a, as, a, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, there should be this longing to be a part of some, something like that. Um, we see God do this. He does this. He delivers his people over and over and over again. So before we jump into our passage today, which is Acts eleven nineteen through 30, this passage came to mind just like over and over and over again for me um, as I read. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to start here. It's in Isaiah. It's probably not where we thought we were going. But 
Um, Isaiah 43, 18 through 21. This is what the prophet Isaiah, God said through the prophet Isaiah to his people. He says this. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Do you not see it? I'm making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that I, that they may proclaim my praise. Um, today, we've talked about uh, how there has been instances with Philip and there's been an instance with Peter where um, reaching out towards the Gentiles has begun. But today is unique because for the first time we see an entire community move towards what used to be a wasteland. Like, we move towards these people that at one point had no hope. And I, I just hope before we even start today that you can see that the picture that we have is this desert that now has this river of flowing water through it and life begins to spring up around it. That's what, that is what we have. God does this over and over and over again. And it's helpful for us before we start to look back into the Old Testament and see, okay, so after after God pulls his people out of Exodus, this is what he has for them. He says, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing something new. Um, and, and it's going to lead to my praise. And it's going to bring life. Rivers in a wasteland. And so I'm excited to talk about today what God is doing through the church of Antioch. It really is. It's unique. It's exciting. So Acts chapter 11, um, 19 through 30. Let's start in verse 19. It says, now... Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was upon them, was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples first were called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the day of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning, um, Lord, that you would, that your spirit would speak. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, we've seen you move. Um, Father, we've placed our hope in Jesus Christ, uh, the only way, 
um, to know you and, Lord, to have a life that's restored to you. And so today we move forward in faith, holding and clinging firmly to your word and your truth. And we believe that you are, Lord, that you're speaking to us today through your word and through your spirit. So move me out of the way um, and, and just speak. Father, I pray that you would just do that. Just proclaim your good and perfect truth to us this morning. Show us exactly what you have for us, Lord, that we would be equipped, fully equipped for the work that you have put before us. Um, Lord, this is the work that you have put before the church of Antioch, and they did it faithfully, and it, and it multiplied. And our desire is to pick up that work and to do our faithful part through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you would receive the glory in Philadelphia and far beyond. Father, do that today. We love you. In your name, amen. All right. Um, so today, to sum it up, not to put it too lightly, um, we are going to talk about, this is the beginning of the most influential church in the entire book of Acts, and um, some would say it is the most influential missional church um, that has ever existed. You're like, yo, that's strong. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a good argument for it. This church has become and will become um, just the, the hub. So what's, what you're going to see is that this shift happening from Jerusalem, which is where Jesus ascends and the disciples gather. Um, and from there, there has been these just like offshoots from Stephen, starting with Stephen, this persecution, right? So out of persecution comes life. There's this persecution that happens and there's this sending of just people all over the ancient world. Um, but something different happens in Antioch because as they arrive in Antioch, there's a different, um, there's, the gospel takes in a completely new and different way. And so it's important for us to know not just the people that were there, um, but everything about this was God-ordained. Like it was from beginning to end, everything was purposeful, including the city, Antioch. Like, why is this city so unique and crucial? So let's start with a map, as we always do. Boom. Uh, this is the first uh, missionary journey of Paul. So we haven't actually gotten here, but it says starting point. Antioch's right up there in the corner. And what you're going to see already is that it's really close to the Mediterranean Sea. Some would say it's 18 miles. Some say it's 30 miles. Nobody agreed on that. I thought that was interesting. I don't know why. We can just walk it out. Um, but 18 miles away from the Mediterranean Sea. And so there's a huge advantage um, when it comes to just like warfare where they have access to the water, but they're kind of protected. So this is kind of the city that began to flourish because everything in those days was about, man, how protected are you and what does your trade routes look like, right? So the, these cities kind of, and to be quite honest, it's similar to the way that it is today. 95 is a massive trade route. I don't know that you think about it that way, but 95 goes all the way down our east coast, and it hits every major city, and along it, there's a reason these cities pop up. It's because they, they grow from the commerce that flows from one end to the other, and so oftentimes you're going to see these influential cities on these, on these really, really important trade routes. So this city was, because of that, was a wildly diverse city um, in the Roman world. Tony Merida, uh, it says it this way. He says, the city served as a crossroads, having major highways going to the north, south, and east. Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians all populated Antioch, making it remarkably 
diverse. So it's this unique place, 500,000 people. So just to give like a frame of reference, Washington, D.C., I think is like 600,000 people. Philadelphia is 1.6. And I found out that the highest, 1.6 million people. And the highest of Philadelphia's ever been was 2.5, I think, in like 1950, which is like, ah, it's a kind of a dive after that. But kind of just, whoop. But either way, that's just, um, yeah, it's just this place that just grew and grew and grew. And there was, this, there was this market there that was constantly, constantly growing the city. And it became a place where people would trade not just goods, but they would trade religion. They would, they would trade they would have interactions that were unique in Antioch as opposed to any other city. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world uh, behind Alexandria and Rome. So I looked at the Worcester Art Museum has put up, yeah, shout out to uh, City, uh, City Life Church, City Light Church, and uh, I looked at the Worcester Art Museum, and they put up, they put up this, I guess like two or three years ago, they did this big study on Antioch, Antioch and this is, what they, this is what they said. They said, this helped me just understand, like picture the setting in which all of this took place. Commerce thrived in Antioch, and consumers could buy an endless supply of goods in all parts of the city. Women and children filled earthenware water jars to the brim at the plentiful public fountains. In addition... Jugglers and acrobats performed whatever they could gather, at, whenever they could gather a crowd. Beggars danced and piped, and full officers and orators gave great lectures. Um, uh, uniformed soldiers were all positioned everywhere, keeping unruly citizens and visitors at bay. Antioch enjoyed public street lighting, which was unusual during that period, and the city bustled, with, uh, bustled until midnight. And Antioch's compilation... Um, compilation of society, both classical and oriental religions, cults were accepted and new ideas were encouraged. This is why John Stott says that no more appropriate place could have been imagined, either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. This place, I hope you have a picture now in your mind of what this place is like. It's awful. It's similar to Philadelphia in the sense that it's wildly diverse. I mean, the, the long list of um, different backgrounds are represented in one place. This wildly diverse place with all these different markets in a place where everything was exchanged. And it was a, it was a unique, unique place in its time. And so enter the gospel. It's just from Jerusalem, there's these people that are sent and enters in this gospel message into a place that was unique, especially different than Jerusalem itself. So Jerusalem, like we talked about before, was, um, it was the hub of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith. And so Jerusalem has this Jewish culture and Jewish subculture that already exists. But the culture in Antioch is different. It's almost hard to define it. It's similar to here where you're just like, it depends where you're at, you know? I mean, if you're in like North Philly, it's one thing. If you're in South Philly, it's one thing. There's Italian markets, but then there's also like Chinatown, and it's just like, it depends where you're at. It's just this like melting pot of all of these different people in one place. And so the gospel shows what it does when it enters into a place like this. So the question that we need to ask today is what made this church, what made this church at Antioch, such a successful missional church? What made this church such a successful 
missional church. The first thing that we're going to see is that they shared their faith in a new way. They shared their faith in a new way. All right, back in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this is where we begin, where when they, they do what they would do in leading up into this point, this is how it was normally carried out, where you would, you would take your faith first to the people that you're familiar with. And so as Jewish people, they would take their faith to other Jewish people. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So the Hellenists, that word we talked about a little bit in reference to Jewish people. Hellenists specifically means Greek. So you have these Greek, now Gentile Hellenists that are in this community, and they begin to take the word there. So the first thing that we see here is Luke's description. Um, Luke's description, his best description of this is that they were, there were some men that brought this to the men of Cyprus, Cyrene, uh, that brought this to the Hellenists, which I think is interesting because um, we've been in Acts for like four months now. And one thing that Luke um, is not is vague. He's a detailed dude. <laughs> he knows exactly what to say, when to say it. He will give you the details of the story. And so there's a reason that his best description for these people at this point is some men. I don't know. There, was, there were some guys there that just brought... And you're like, this is, the, this is the first Christian movement into the international world, and you're going to give me some men? <laughs> like some guys. And I think that tells us two things about Luke's purpose in writing this. The first thing that he's trying to do is he's trying to emphasize not so much the people that brought it there, but the next thing that he says is the hand of the Lord was upon them. That's what he doesn't want you to miss. He's like, do not miss this. There are multiple times throughout this passage that you see that even though people are moving towards them, what Luke is bringing to the surface over and over and over again is God is pushing his mission forward. So he has this statement and he says, the hand of the Lord was upon them. And um, I think it forces us to reckon with this idea of like, okay, so we live in... Um, we live in a culture that uh, celebrity and influence um, is king, right? Uh, everyone has their influence, and it's, it's gauged by the amount of followers or likes that you get on whatever page that you're on. And in this story, the people's names aren't even mentioned. Yet they, did, they had more influence um, than maybe almost any other Christians that we've throughout history. And so the question is, man... Are you okay? Are you okay if your name is never known? And I think whether it's in the world of business, whether it's in um, the place that you work, or whether it's in your own, we do this even within our own like ministry. Are you okay? Are you at peace with the fact that more, more likely than not, your name is not going to be what carries I, I think it's easy for us to sit back and be like, you know what, of course I'm okay with that. Everyone has, that's totally fine. 
Um, everyone, has, someone has more influence than me. Someone's always going to have more. You know, some people are going to get recognition. Some people are not. I get that. Um, and you'd be like, all right, I'm all right with that. Um, but I want to show you how it plays out. Um, there's a discontentment towards your role in the mission that ultimately looks more like a restlessness with the good work that God has placed before you. So maybe you wouldn't verbally say, man, I just want more recognition, but maybe you're chasing something else. Because that maybe could give you the recognition that you feel like would give you a valid place in the mission of God. And what it can do is actually distract you from the good work that God has placed before you, what it's like. It's like walking into a restaurant, which is God's good work, sitting down at the table that God has prepared for you, him giving you a meal and saying, I didn't order this. It's this moment where you're just like, I, I got, you gave me the salad. I actually, that, the steak looks good. You're like, someone over there is eating something that looks better. And there's a temptation in all of us that I just couldn't move past as I read this, where I'm just like, man, they weren't even named. To, to look at our ministry as though its significance comes from the platform or its significance comes from the recognition that it receives. When what we see here is that these unnamed men, these common unnamed men had massive influence with the faithful mission that they did in their city to their neighbors. And that's it. And so it's not that God can't sometimes at some point lead you somewhere else. I absolutely believe he is. It's not that God isn't calling you continually to consider, what he's, to consider what's next in your life. But at times, if we're honest, we, we're not actually searching for God's answers. We're actually questioning God and what he's given, right? We just are like, is this okay? Am I truly okay with this? And it's something that I've personally wrestled with, absolutely, where you go through life and you just like, you just perceive that, man, if, if you're obedient, then, then you, it will feel and look a certain way. When in, with the reality is that Stephen was the one that started this. Stephen was the one that God used to send out. And out of his life is persecution. So, yeah, I, I think we need to really consider, man, are we being faithful first and foremost, not because of the platform that we have, but more so because this is what God has laid before us. Is this the work that we are at peace with, what God has laid before us? So the second thing that we, the second reason that I think Luke wrote it this way um, and that the reason that they go unnamed is that a transition, in, transition is happening in Luke's story. Something's happening. Like Luke's telling this story for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. And what he's doing is he's shifting from this individuals where we've had the disciples and we've, we saw Saul and we're going to continue to see Paul. We're not going to do it. At some point, hopefully, we'll be able to do Acts, Acts series number two. Um, but throughout the book of Acts, you'll see, you'll see Paul and his ministries. But the focus then shifts to the congregations, like something's happening in these cities. And so you see how these cities are being shaped by the gospel and the people are the movement. You know, it's, um, I think when I, when I think on um, influence, there's certain names that come to mind when, when we talk about just like church history. 
Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Corey Tim Boone, Joan of Arc, C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham. Um, these are names that just come to mind. And you're like, man, I, I don't know that... Um, I don't know that I ever expect to have that kind of, of influence in, in, in ministry, but I, I think one of the things that uh, we fail to see, and I think Luke is showing us right here, is that while those people are com- spiritual giants, um, the church, the mission of God moves forward through the Holy Spirit and the people of God reaching people for God. Like, that's it. Like, those people have these incredible platforms, but in between there, there's this long list of names that we will never know this side of heaven, ever. And that is the church. The church is the mission, and the church is what God is moving forward. And so Luke is, the reason that he doesn't share this is because he is transitioning this story to show that the movement are the people of God. That's what it is. And so we're going to see this today where for the very first time, those people are given a name. Timothy Keller says when he's talking about these people in particular, he says, these mavericks are doing something new. Um, It's an interesting choice of words, Timothy. Uh, These mavericks are doing something new. I I think what he's trying to say, uh, David Platt says it about this, he says, we need to begin to equip ordinary people for extraordinary ministry. And I think it's absolutely true where where there is, um, and there's a call that we have on our life, um, that is no way any less than anything else. It is, sim- it is any less than the person next to it. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the call is, is simply to go and make disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit with the proclamation of his word. And I, I think oftentimes we just, man, we just grow tired. We just, we just desire it for, to look a little bit different. But what we see here is that what these people did was something absolutely new and incredible. So up until this point, like we said, um, Brian did a a great job last week just kind of outlining the difference between the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture. Um, They are worlds apart. And and it's hard to almost really um, understand fully what, what, what that's like. But, I mean, walk into um, any other neighborhood in, in Philadelphia um, that is predominantly uh, one culture, whether it's a, a Mexican culture, whether it's, um, it's, a, it's a black culture, whether it's an Italian culture, whether, whatever it is, it, you walk into there and just, if, you, if you're not in that, if you're not a part of that culture, um, there's a part of you that just feels like, man, this is, how do we even begin conversation, you know? And so it just takes, it takes time and understanding. But what happens as you live close in proximity um, is that those cultures begin to overlap. And so maybe in Jerusalem, where there's this just predominantly Jewish culture, it just, it just overtook the entire city. But in Antioch, it's a little bit different because, like we said before, there's so many cultures in one spot. It's just this melting pot of cultures. And so you have these people that are in close, close proximity to one another. Like they are just, just because out of necessity, their lives overlap. It has to happen. And so when they receive the gospel, there's something different that happens in their hearts because they begin to look towards not just their Jewish brothers, although they took it to them first. They're like, this is for my neighbor. 
Like, this is for all people. This is something that's good for everyone. And it's almost like just taking a gift. It's almost like for the Jewish people, it may have felt radical, but I, I just believe that for the people, the Jewish people that are in Antioch, it almost just felt as natural as taking a gift across the street to your neighbor. They're just there. And so I think it informs how we do this. Um, we, uh, we have a lot of strategies when it comes to this. I think all of which are, all of which are good and um, most of which are good. Um, and I think can absolutely be a blessing to the person that is delivering the gospel and the per- person that is receiving the gospel. Um, but as, as we talked in Pipeline just uh, the other week, we, we kind of came across this idea where it was like, you know what? We see three things in Scripture that when it comes to evangelism that are absolutely crucial. Um, we see the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. You're going to receive power. You need that power. You can't do it without that power. Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit. You see a command, Matthew 28.19. Go make disciples of all nations. You know, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there's this, there's this, the Holy Spirit, this command, and then you see relationship. 1 Corinthians 9, 22, which is Paul saying, I've become all things to all people. So, and especially even when they talked about Jesus, they said he was a friend of sinners. Um, so there's this like intentional relationship that even Jesus modeled in his own life. And so these, these three things, the Holy Spirit, um, the command and relationship, oftentimes when we share the gospel can feel like they're at odds with one another, which is really unfortunate because they're not. So we can feel like we share the gospel out of um, a, in what we would just an, an impulse or a leading, um, and, and that's simply it. And I, because of that, it's just like this, all right, well, God's going to lead me to anybody. And there's, there's no, there's no com- we're not doing it because we're commanded to, or we're not doing it because of relationship. We're doing it just because, well, this is, we've been told that we've been given power. Um, and then you have the command where, where people are like, I'm going to communicate it no matter what. You know, it's just like, it's going to come out. And sometimes it just comes out like, you know, and it just happens. Uh, and you feel faithful and you walk away, but I don't know how productive it was. You know, it was, it was communicated, but I don't know that it was received. And then there's relationship where sometimes, you know, you have, you're very intentional with your relationship. You show gospel intentionality with your relationship, um, but, you know, it lacks gospel at times. And so you never actually share the gospel. And what we see throughout scripture is that when, in these moments where you have communities like this that have taken on an entire city, that you have three things that are clearly, clearly displayed. The leading of the Holy Spirit, the command to share, and you have intentional, intentional relationships that happen. And so all of these things are just kind of united together in what we would call a healthy approach to evangelism. Like sometimes, yes, you're not going to have an opportunity to build a relationship before you share the gospel and the Holy Spirit saying, share. I have good news for this person. Share it. And then there's other times where, man, you have this relationship that you have worked on for months and years. And, and you've been able to just sow seeds a little bit at a time. And it's just like it just takes time. But you're faithful with the power of the Holy Spirit to just continue to share. You know, I, I think... 
at times we can go frustrated with these things, but I think we need to be at peace with the fact that all of this is being led by the Lord, and those three things are meant to guide us in the way that we share the gospel. So if we're to take one thing away, before we jump to the next point, we're to take one thing away, I, I think um, those are the things that make up our evangelistic effort. Those are the things that made their evangelism, their approach to sharing the gospel completely new. And um, I, I think what we have to see in this is that I, I truly believe the reason that it happened in Antioch was because there was already lives that were being shared. Like by the time the gospel got there, they were already sharing their lives with the rest of the city. And so a question that we can answer that we've been asking in a couple different circles is, where in your life are you regularly interacting with people that are not followers of Jesus Christ? Where? Because maybe, one, maybe the reason that it feels so daunting to share the gospel is because you don't know anybody to share the gospel with. And maybe you can see people that would benefit from the gospel, but we're meant to know people, know them deeply, to share the gospel not for the purpose of sharing it, but to share it so that it would be received. That you, would, that you would know someone. So are there any circles in your life that you are regularly interacting with people that are not followers of Jesus Christ so that you have an opportunity out of relationship, power of the Holy Spirit, because you're commanded to, to share this good news? So the first thing was that um, they share in a new way. The second thing that we see in this passage is that they share their lives and become a new people. All right, so these are the things that make them a missional, a very successful missional church. Start in verse 23. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I love that he has to go look for him. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a while... Uh, yeah, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So they're, they're Christians. Um, and uh, this was something, this is a name that they did not make up themselves. This is a name that, from what we can see according to the text, is that they were called this. This was something, a name that they were given. David Peterson says it this way. He says, the name suggests belonging to Christ or the people who have habitually named the name of Christ, similar to Herodians, who were those who identified with Herod. They were known as Christ people because they spoke often of Christ and were followers of his way. So we see this definition, it is, which is great because what this means is that in the city of Antioch, that they could no longer say the Jewish faith had taken a turn. They could no, no longer say there's a Jewish people and they, they seem to believe different things. What they have to do is completely redefine it all together because they're like, well, now there's Jewish people and there's all these other people and they're saying the same thing. And they look like the same people. And so we're trying to define what it is. And the best way that we can describe this is, is what... The one thing that, keep, that is most in common with all of these people is Christ. They speak the name of Christ often. They follow the way of Christ. And so 
Let's call them Christians. And so for the very first time, it's almost necessary for them to be redefined as a people where there's this, you are now a people, you are Christians. It is what you are. And, and it's, it's exciting because that means that the Christian faith had taken root in such a way in the city of Antioch that it required them to respond to it. It required a response. And that is what we talk about in the beginning, this new thing. That is what we want to be a part of. That is what we long to be a part of, where the hand of God was moving in such a way that it was, it's the only explanation is that God was doing something. So before we moved, um, we moved here in December. I moved here in December 2019, some a little earlier um, and some a little later. Moved over 2020. What a year. It's almost 2022. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, we, we moved over this time. And, and before we moved, I, I, um, I sat down um, in, my, in my quiet time. Um, I was at the office at the church that we were at. One of the other pastors walks in um, and he hands me a paper because I left this paper behind. Um, and there was, it's kind of grown, it's kind of a, it's wrinkled now. Um, but on this paper, there was a moment where I just felt like I had to write it down. Um, but th this was our desire from the beginning. Uh, this is what I desire to see God do. Said, I, I wrote really big. Um, God is going to plant churches all over Philadelphia. People are going to know and follow Jesus Christ in such a way that the whole world will take notice and acknowledge that the hand of God is at work. They will see and praise God. And I know that can feel far off right now. But as I look at the hand of God in the work of the church at Antioch, and I look at the hand of God throughout the Old Testament, as I look at the hand of God over and over again in my life, I'm like, why not? Why can God not do that again? That's what he does. That the hand of God would be at work where whether you are a follower of Christ, whether you are in the city of Philadelphia and you opposed Christ, you would have to acknowledge something that I cannot explain has happened. And you may say it's God, but I don't know what happened, but something happened. That is what we see in this moment, where in a city that was overrun with different religions, in a city that was overrun with different people, in a city that was overrun with, honestly, as you look more into it, a lot of sin and darkness, something happened in such a way that the entire city took notice, and eventually the entire world is shaped by the people at Antioch. The entire world. These are our ancestors. Maybe it's an easier way to put it. If you are not of the Jewish faith, if you are not a Jewish people and of a Jewish descendant, these are your ancestors. As a Christian and follower of Jesus, not a Jewish person, a Gentile, these are the people that shared the faith that you now partake in. This changed the world. God can do this again. So we see this, um, that a couple things happened. It changed, um, 
one of the things that was significant is they sent Barnabas. You guys remember Barnabas? Barnabas is, um, he always sees the best in people. I appreciate that about Barnabas. Um, he's always the guy that's kind of like, soon he's going to be standing between John, Mark, and Paul. He's going to be like, listen, guys, you know, it's going to be all right. It doesn't, well, eventually, yeah. Uh, they, but Barnabas is this guy that kind of just always finds himself in the middle. It was significant in Paul's life because as Paul goes to the disciples in Jerusalem, Barnabas is the one that stands up for Paul and says, hey, he's okay. I saw him. You know, I know that he's like done some crazy things, but I've seen him. So he's kind of always standing up for people. And Barnabas is the one that they send. So as the Gentiles there gets word back to Jerusalem that the Gentiles have received the faith, they send Barnabas. And Barnabas shows up with a big smile, you know. And he's just like, man, like, look at the, what the grace of God has done. And there's this joy that, like, just, like, flows out of him. And he's like, keep going. Like, be, like, steadfast in the pursuit. Like, keep moving. It's a good thing. He just gets to affirm and encourage, which is Barnabas' name. He's the son of encouragement. And so this is what he does. His name fits him so well. So there's a reason that they send Barnabas. But when Barnabas shows up, he does three things. These things are crucial for us. And um, just because I, I think it's, it's helpful, these three things were noted in um, uh, Christ-centered exposition. There it is. Never want to take credit for someone else's work. Uh, he pulls out these three things, which I think were really helpful. Uh, but he says that Barnabas, he's... He, the first thing that he offers is accountability. So as he shows up, um, there's this accountability from the church of Jerusalem to just say, can I assess what's happening in an honest way? Can I, can I assess this and really just try to, try to discern, is this something that is similar to the other works in the city and that it'll die off or it's just going to be another faith? Or can I truly affirm this is like the other things that we've seen? This is of God. Like God's doing something here. So he provides accountability. He immediately encourages which is crucial because to have someone that comes from Jerusalem to say, hey, what you're doing is a good work is a huge encouragement to the people that are doing it. And then the last thing that he offers is teaching. So he goes and he grabs Saul of Tarsus. Saul goes back home at some point. Um, Tarsus is where he's from. And, and he goes and he grabs him. I love that he had to find him. Um, for our world where just like cell phones and text messages, that's an odd thing to do. But you got to think, like, there's time in between here where he leaves Antioch, goes to Tarsus, and is like, yo, has anyone seen Saul? He's around here somewhere. So after he, like, walks through all of Tarsus and finds him, he's like, all right, yo, I got this thing. Something crazy's happening in Antioch. you got to come with me. And, and Paul's probably like, I don't really want to. And he's like, ah, I'm coming. All right, so then he comes, and he goes to Antioch. And now these men are sitting there, right? These men are now sitting here with this new church that is hungry for the word, that is hungry for direction and for teaching. And for a whole year, they sit and they just listen. They open the word. And what we see is that they grow numerically, but we also see because of their generosity and we see throughout the passage that they just grow as individuals. Like these three things of accountability, encouragement, and teaching serve them well in their discipleship. They just do. Like it's it provides a foundation for them that is going to last long after Paul and Barnabas are gone. So a year from now, from this point, they send them off, which is a healthy thing to do in the beginning. But 
shows evidence that long after they're gone, Antioch just seems to be this foundation for the mission of God throughout the ancient world. So it's important. What time is it? 11.13. It's important that we... Um, it's important that we do these things well. So accountability. Um, James 5.16 and Luke 7.3. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Luke 17.3 says, Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You know, I, I think it's important that we, um, that we are... Um, assessing and maintaining the health, not just of us, um, but the individual next to us. This doesn't mean that we're constantly critiquing each other, but it means that we're constantly offering the gospel to each other. Where your brother stumbles and, and there's an opportunity for you to pull them aside and be like, hey, there's a, there's a better way. You and I both know there's a better way. Can we, can we repent of this together and can we, can we move forward? It's, it's the reason that accountability is there. It was put there so that for the purification of the church, that you would continue to apply the gospel to each other's lives, that you would hold each other accountable. And out of that, there's encouragement. So 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Hebrews 10.25 don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of son, but encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near. There's different ways that we can encourage each other. Um, I would say this. A healthy principle for encouragement is to not place, is to place the source of our faith, the source of our power, and um, Lord, keep the main thing the main thing is what I would say. Um, so when we provide encouragement, we encourage with the gospel. When we provide any kind of um, acknowledgement of the way that God is using someone, man, it's, it's a blessing for that person more so not to put them at the center of that, but to help them see how God is using them in that, right? So let's do that for each other, where when we come alongside each other, that, man, we could say, yo, I, man, I have seen God completely bless the people around you. Um, we, get, we get chances to do this. I think, um, didn't plan on doing this, but Tim Sawson is a great example of this. He does this well, and one of the reasons that, one of the ways that I, as a, just as a friend, try to encourage him is to show him the different ways that God's healing people around him. And you all have this. Like, you all have these things where you just, like, you need somebody you need someone in your life to come alongside you and be like, hey, it's a good work. Like, it's a good work. It's worth it. I know today's tough, but like, listen, I'm watching and I'm seeing God do incredible things. So please keep at it. Like, God can strengthen you in this. So we encourage one another. We're meant to do that for each other. And then we're also meant to teach. Now, this is a unique setting in which Paul and Barnabas, this is the A-team, you know, these guys are significant. This is their first time together um, and in, teaching, in a role of teaching, and they continue to do this together for a long time. And it's, it shows a lot of really good fruit. Um, but one of the reasons that it's so fruitful is because, well, what's written in Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Um, who are your leaders? And 
And is there a submission to them that honors the Lord? And as you look at their life and you assess their life, do they model this discipleship in a way that is worth following? And I, I think what you see with Paul um, is, is that he models this teaching in a way where he multiplies himself over and over and over again. This is, this is why it's so, um, it's just possible for them to even leave after a year. Uh, I, I think, I'm like, dude, that sounds, after church planning, I'm like, that's not nearly enough time, you know? Um, but after one year, they send off um, Paul and Barnabas. And the reason that they're able to do this is because they've spent an entire year training up men and women, training up the congregation so that they could then be leaders as well and so that they could, that they could, be, um, they could be leaders that would lead the mission in the church of Antioch and they could move on to what else God had called them to. It's unique in this setting, but it's important that we recognize that, man, it's, it's part of the way that God has laid out his church. But teaching doesn't only happen from here to there. Teaching, specifically in Colossians, says like this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Um, teaching is something that we are all partakers in. And you're just like, dude, don't tell me that I'm a teacher. I don't want to be a teacher. Um, you do. You, you teach others. Uh, it, may not, it may look different, but you, you play a role in teaching. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are specifically commanded to teach them the ways of Jesus, right? That's what we see in Matthew 28, 19, is that we would teach one another. And so you play a role in this. So part of some of the questions that you could be asking yourself is, who am I teaching? <laughs> like, like, when I look at Scripture, is there anyone in my life that I'm going to Scripture, I'm learning about what the Lord has taught me, and I'm taking that, and I'm teaching it to somebody else? Is there anybody in your life that you're doing that for? Is there anybody that in your life that's doing that for you? Like, just think about that. Is, do you have someone that is has been like a consistent teacher for you? And is there anyone that you're doing that alongside? So what I mean by that is you look at Paul and Barnabas, that there's these two men taught together. And I do think there's a unique um, bond with them. And there's oftentimes this gifting that God just gives as the to the body where, man, as you're teaching, there's someone else that you're kind of teaching each other, but you are just supporting each other as you both are used to teach others around you. Like, look for that. Like, there, is there anyone in your life that you're just kind of tethered to, that you just kind of get to encourage each other, and you just learn together, and you teach together? It's just what you do. So just look for it. I think we see it modeled here, and it was very fruitful for this church. So these people, man, they shared their lives, um, and they became a new people. It changed the city of Antioch. It changed who they were. The last thing is that they shared their resources for a new mission. They shared their resources for a new mission. All right. Oh, boy. Here we go. Um, starting in verse 27. It says, Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, 
stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the first thing that we see is that there's this prophet, right, Um, Agabus. But there's actually, what they said was that they sent prophets. So we have for the first time this community of people that um, were sent and they were prophets. And so what that meant was that while not all of them prophesied like Agabus, so if you look at, Agabus was an interesting guy. If you look at um, Acts chapter, I don't have it down here, I think it's Acts chapter 21, you see Agabus right before Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's the one that goes up and grabs Paul's belt and ties it around his hands and his feet. Um, and he's like, he's like, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. So again, he's prophesying. Um, and you're like, it's a little dramatic, Agabus. He could have just said it, you know. <laughs> um, no, but he's, he's, he does this. You see him serve this specific role a couple different times where he is foretelling what is going to happen. Uh, and so you have this community of people that it doesn't sound like everyone is telling, like Agabus is, exactly what's going to happen next. But it does sound like there's a community of people that carry specifically the gift of prophecy. And so as you look at the Old Testament, there's specific things that, that pop out with the gift of prophecy um, when it's carried out. You see that they warn, they rebuke, um, they counsel God's people. Um, they're a blessing to the people around him. And this is them, it's all done for the edification of the body. It doesn't always look the same. It's always led through the, through the spirit, but it's all done for the edification of the body. And the reason that we know this is going to happen is because we, it was said that it would happen. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17 says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. This is something that should be expected. It's, it's something that we should anticipate, that God could speak through someone else around you. The Holy Spirit could speak through them in a way that would give you insight as to what God is calling to next, what God is saying. And it's always meant to be done in submission to the word, first and foremost. But what we see here is that it comes true, that this famine happens. Um, and what this young, young church does is they give. And they, um, they give, they don't collect this big gift. What actually says that they, they give, um, what does it say? That according to his ability. They give according to his ability. So you see giving happening in different ways within the body. You have this um, in the beginning of Acts chapter 2 where you have they had all things in common. You see the disciples gathering things. And then you have this where it's just like they just gave according to their ability, which is important. It's important to recognize that like giving happens and looks different throughout the congregation like it should. There's times where, man, as a church we have... And there's tithing that has taken place. And so, man, there's opportunities where we get to give to a, bit, to a mission. And it's just, you know, it's just from the church. We've collected things and we, and we send it out. And there's other times where you're just like, you know what? There's a, there's a need. And we're just going to make this available to you. Just give according to whatever, whatever you can give. If you can give $5, that's great. If you can give $1, that's great. If you can give $1,000, whatever. Sounds great. Whatever you feel like the Lord's calling you to give, we just want to make this available to you. So we see this here is that that's, man, it's something that just happened. 
and it fueled the mission of God. They cared for a congregation that was not part of their own, um, that was far away, that at this point looked different than they did, um, and they cared enough to send whatever resources they could, they, could, they could send. It's important. It's something that we see as the gospel takes root. It's just like you need to look. Like there's certain evidences. So you look at the life of believers. Um, it's to someone that is tr- truly following the Lord, and it's someone that holds everything they have with an open hand. We see it over and over again. It's just it's like, you know what? That's a mark of a believer. Someone, someone that says, if I can, I'm going to do whatever I can to provide. Um, so we wanted to give you one opportunity. I got an email. Um, I got an email from Kevin McGinn. Kevin McGinn is a pastor at uh, City Light Church in Worcester, Massachusetts. They got there um, two years before we did, and they are um, they have a much smaller team, but they're but they're growing. And one of the most exciting things that's happening is Stephen Shogay came and he sat down with some of our missional communities, um, and they explained like, hey, this is uh, this is what we feel like God's leading us to, and it's called Vessel. It's a skate park. Um, there's Kevin McGinn. Yay. Uh, and so here, go back to Kevin for one second. Um, he, he sent me an email about a week ago, and he says, he said, as you know, we're working to open a free-to-the-community indoor skate park here in Worcester, which will also be the location of our church's gatherings. Uh, rather than investing in a facility that would be used a few hours or a week, we want to create an environment where we can engage our community all week long. A generous donor has put up $15,000 as a matching grant, so every dollar we raise right now will be doubled and will bring, in, bring us one step closer to locking a location for the park. They're nearing the end of that, and so um, I thought, what an opportunity. <laughs> what a great opportunity. None of this money goes to us. This goes to a mission. This is a place that's far away from us. We would love to send a team, um, but I... He came and he sat down. We see a very clear need and a very clear opportunity. Now, what an opportunity to just model what we see here in Scripture. And so I truly say this. Like, if you can give, like, $1, that is totally fine. If you don't feel led to give anything, that's totally fine. But our role in this is just to lead in this. If you're a guest, please don't feel obligated to give to anything. Um, But I, I do think what we see as a church is that Man, we want to do everything we can to model this and, and to put before you opportunities where other churches have very clear needs. And so, yeah, that's where they're at right now. They have $11,000. And I'm excited just simply he's going to be encouraged by the fact that I didn't tell him I was doing this. Um, he's going to be encouraged by the fact that I'm going to get to call him and be like, hey, man, um, there we were able to stand up and just show your need, and we're just praying that the Lord uses it. So as a church, we have given to this. You guys need to be aware of the things that we've given to. So as a church, we have given to this. Um, But this is something that we're going to continue to do is to just do everything we can to just lay needs before you. And and honestly, whatever happens is up to the Lord. It's similar to the teacher situation where you're just like, no, no pressure. Just this this is what we see modeled. A generosity that marks the church. So... This is what we see throughout this passage, is that Antioch was, it was a unique place. I think um, the QR code is going to be up there afterwards. Ray can stick it up there after the, uh, after the service. Um, Antioch was a unique place. 
Um, it was a unique place because of the city that it was in. It was a unique place because of the relationships that were already there. It serves a especially unique purpose throughout the rest of the mission. But I couldn't help think of Philadelphia. Um, as you look at this city, you're just like, man, um, there are so many similarities to uh, the city of Antioch um, and the good work that God has put before us. And so I think what we'd like more than anything is to just come to the Lord in prayer and just say, Lord, will you do this again? Um, that he would do that in our hearts, that, we're, that there would be a movement that would be inexplicable outside of God did something. Um, and I think in order for us to do that, there needs to be a leading from the Lord, most importantly. Um, I think we need to change the way that we interact with people, have, share our faith in a new way, share our lives, and be a people that God's called us to be, um, and share resources, however God calls us to. So um, let me pray for us this morning uh, as the band comes up. Uh, and if you would like to talk about any, uh, any of this, I would, I would love to talk to you more about it. Brian would love to talk to you more about it. Um, yeah, I'll pray for us. Hmm. Father, the mission, um, it's yours. It's in your hands. Um, Father, we recognize that, uh, man, the people of Antioch, this church in Antioch was faithful. But we see that they are also just, they're common people like us, and that you use them in an incredible way to shape the entire world. Lord, our desire um, is not to be used by you so that we could receive any credit, Lord, so that our names could be recorded anywhere. Our desire is to be used by you for your glory and for your purpose, that there would be a worship, an acknowledgement of the presence of God in the city of Philadelphia. Lord, that it would be something that would be undeniable, both to those that are Christians and those that do not follow Christ, that people would have to acknowledge that something happened that is inexplicable outside of divine intervention. Father, I pray that it would begin not as a big vision that just feels like far off that, um, or that we can't accomplish, but we would... We've come all the way back to our relationship with you, our personal relationship with you. Lord, that there would be a personal holiness. Lord, the way that we interact with our neighbors, the way that we interact with each other. Lord, that the vision would start there. Lord, that you would lead us in the way that we speak, in the way that we act. Lord, in the, in the faith and the belief and the boldness that we have towards what you can do with a few people that are willing to follow you wherever. So, Father, would you do this again? Um, we love you, Lord. Grateful for your word and grateful for your spirit this morning. In your name, amen.